Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of January 13th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. It has been uh, a month and a half or so since we've been here. We did some things at Christmas that were a little different going through Advent. And last week we talked about what it means to look at and have a vision of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we look into the year 2019. So this morning we, res- we find ourselves back in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 6 in a, a passage that probably many of you are familiar with. is known as the feeding of the 5,000. Let me just remind you of what's taking place and what is, what is going on here. Jesus earlier in Mark chapter 6 had sent his disciples on essentially the first mission trip. He had sent them out in pairs, two by two, to scour the villages of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. There are some who, as they try to look at the census data and all the towns through history, speculate that somewhere around 250, maybe a little bit more than that, uh, villages and towns all throughout the northern half of Israel that he would have sent the disciples to. And they spent the next several months, perhaps upwards of six to nine months, the disciples went, spent uh, preaching, through the northern part of the nation of Israel, preaching repentance and making Christ known. And so at the end of this chapter, where we're picking up today, right before we have the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples are coming back and they're reporting to Jesus all that took place. Wouldn't you have liked to have heard that meeting? All the disciples, Peter, James, John, some of the guys you don't know too well, Thaddeus, all coming to Jesus and going, you wouldn't believe what took place. And Jesus is probably going, yeah, I will. <laughs> and they talked about all that had taken place, all the, all the difficulties. They probably all had those places where they had to kind of shake the dust out of their sandals and move on. But they probably all had stories of people who had responded and people who had taken them in and had fed them. And they had all these stories of the things that God had done over the previous several months. Now, and we're not going to look at this this morning, there is, in Mark chapter 6, before we get to our text today, while they're out on this mission trip, there is other events going on, and you may remember King Herod, and there is a man by the name of Herod who is the next descendant of that line of King Herod, who is on the throne. He'll be the one who Jesus eventually will show up before in, in trial, before he's crucified. And this Herod is, is king over the northern part of Israel, or he's got the title Tetrarch as far as Rome is concerned. And this guy was uh, not the most popular guy in all of Israel, as you might imagine. And John the Baptist in particular had called out this King Herod. He had taken his, brother and his brother's wife. In fact, he had gotten rid of his brother and had married his sister-in-law. And John the Baptist went, now wait a minute. <laughs> and so John the Baptist had kind of called him out on it. And in particular, this embarrassed part of Herod's family. And while Herod, the Bible says, seemed curious about John the Baptist, in the end, we know the story that through the plotting of Herod's wife and her daughter and Herod, John the Baptist, in this grand buffet meal that Herod had thrown, ends up with his head chopped off and it brought to Herod on a platter. So the disciples are on this mission trip. John the Baptist is now dead. And everyone comes together. 
That's where we're going to pick things up this morning as we read in Mark chapter 6. I want to actually begin reading in verse 30, and then we'll go through verse 44. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him <coughs> excuse me, and said, This place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send them away so they may go into the surrounding countryside to villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? He said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. He commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he, looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were five thousand men who ate the loaves. This morning as we look at this passage of Scripture, it's probably one of the more familiar stories. Last week, as we looked at the Scriptures, we talked about here in 2019, our desire to look at and to know and to appreciate who our Savior is, who Jesus is. And our vision for 2019 is not some great program, it's not some great structure or or push or anything, it is simply to know Christ and to make Him known. And so as we look this morning, what we find in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is in some sense really trying to do that, not just with the crowd, but with the disciples. He's trying to make Himself known. The disciples had seen Him do a great many things by this point. They've seen Him raise people from the dead. They've seen Him calm the storms. But as of yet, they aren't truly appreciating all that Jesus really is. And so as we come to our passage this morning, we want to get a clear picture of who Jesus is. This is, by the way, short of the crucifixion and resurrection, the only one of Jesus' miracles that's reported in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only one that's in all four of them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a very similar account. John has some details that we don't have in this account. But here's the setting. The disciples are coming together. They are tired. They've come back from their mission trip. They are reporting to Jesus. Been out for several months on the road, so to speak. They come together and they decide to go for a little retreat. They need a little rest and relaxation. So they get in a boat and they head out to a little secluded spot, probably on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. But the mission trip has been so successful. Jesus' name has gotten out so much that the crowds recognize them getting into the boat. And the crowds want more. And so there, there really is this picture of 
all these people from all these different cities that the disciples have been in for the last several months, hearing where Jesus is going, hearing where the disciples are going, and running there, and they cut him off at the pass. They meet Jesus and his disciples when they get off the boat. The people are desperate for more of Christ. Now, that, that, we, we could just preach right there, couldn't we? A people so desperate to encounter Christ that they run to cut him off when he gets off the boat. I wonder this morning, we talk about wanting to see Jesus, we talk about wanting to encounter our Lord, I wonder how fast we would run. Now, if you're like me, how fast you can run is a different issue. Zacchaeus climbed up a tree to see Jesus. This, these folks here ran. They tried to cut him off. They wanted to get there. They wanted more of him. So they got there ahead of him. And when Jesus shows up, this is a, in many ways a, a sad and a, 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 a difficult verse in this sense. Jesus sees these crowds. And here's what he sees. He says, he, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, we've talked about this before. The Bible compares uh, us as people to sheep all the time. It doesn't compare us to eagles. God doesn't compare us to lions or dolphins or sharks. He compares us to sheep. Now, sheep are many things. They're defenseless. They aren't supposed to be the smartest animals in the world. But in this context, what Jesus sees is a, is a group of people Sheep who have no leader. They are just aimlessly wandering about. They don't know where to go. They don't know how to provide for themselves. They don't know the truth. They are leaderless. They are aimless. They are wandering around with no direction, and they're helpless. And that's what Jesus sees. Now, I would imagine the disciples, and we might see something different. We might see a group of people out there and go, come on, don't they know any better? Get with it. Pick up yourselves by your bootstraps. Get get taken care of. Maybe we would see people who didn't take a bath. Maybe we see people who we think should be providing for themselves. We might see all kinds of things. What Jesus saw was a group of people who were lost. Who were directionless and aimless and wandering and desperate. And his heart was moved with compassion. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, says that all of us like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone, has gone to his own way. What Jesus saw before him was a crowd. And we know the crowd was at least 5,000 men. We can probably add on several thousand women and children. So what Jesus probably saw was maybe somewhere upwards of ten to 15,000, maybe more, maybe less, I don't know. But what he saw was a group of people and everyone's just kind of wandering around their own direction, trying to figure out where to go not having a clue, lost in every sense of the word, and unable to get themselves out of the situation that they're in, unaware of how much danger there really was. And so Jesus sees himself how here? He sees himself clearly as the great shepherd. Now we know there's other places in Scripture where Jesus, in fact, does compare himself to a shepherd, but we see this here. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd, so what's he going to do? 
I want us to, to think here. By the way, there's, there's a reference that Jesus is making here. And, and um, if we were to go over to the Gospel of John, we would see this kind of dot connected, these dots connected for us. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, in fact, I'm going re- to zip over there. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is, is nearing the end of his own life and his own ministry. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God speaks to Moses and through Moses to the people of Israel. And he says this, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. So he's speaking to Moses. God says, I will raise up a prophet like you. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he speaks in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, God says, I'm going to send one Moses like you who they need to listen to. And if they don't listen to him, it's going to be on them. I'm going to, I'm going to hold them to account. Now, what's he talking about there? For many, many years, many of the Jews before Jesus and during his day were waiting for something they waiting for one they called the prophet. And I put a capital P there. They called the prophet. And they were they were waiting for this one who was going to come in the same way that Moses came. Now, Moses obviously is kind of the guy in Jewish history, right? I mean, he's the one that led them out of Exodus. He's the one that God redeemed them through from slavery out of Egypt. He's the one that God shared His Word through and established His covenant with Israel through. He's the one that shepherded them through 40 years of the wilderness. That's who Moses is. He is a shepherd. He is a lawgiver. He is the one through whom the covenant was made. So Moses has this this great level of... uh, of, of esteem in Jewish history. And so when people were thinking about one that would come like Moses, they had this great idea of this next great one. If you were to go to the Gospel of John chapter 1, you would see that there is a conversation between people of Israel who are coming after John the Baptist and, and John the Baptist himself. And so they come to John the Baptist out in the wilderness in the Gospel of John, and they ask him, who are you? He says, well, I'm not the Christ. I'm, I'm not the Messiah. I am not the chosen one. Well, they say, well, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. Then they ask him, are you the prophet? Capital P. And he says, no, I'm not the prophet. Now, we might just look at that and go, what were they talking about? If we were to go to John chapter 6, and John chapter 6 is this account of the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospel of John. And in that accounting, after Jesus feeds them, after they have the meal, after the 12 baskets are full, it says the people recognize Jesus as, guess what? The prophet. It's not maybe perhaps quite as obvious here in Mark, but when Jesus sees the people of Israel aimless and lost as sheep without a shepherd, he understands that he is the prophet, the shepherd. And he's going to make that clear in what he says and in what he does. And so, as the prophet, as, as the shepherd, the first thing he does is what? He has compassion on them, and then he does what? Well, the Bible says that his first thing to do was to teach. Now, that might be counterintuitive to us. We might think of feeding them first. But Jesus, seeing the lost sheep of Israel, says the first thing they need to hear is the Word of God. And so Jesus begins to teach them. He's giving them direction. He's giving them truth. He's letting them know what they don't know. 
He's letting them know who they who he is. Now we don't have the specifics. None of the gospels tell us for sure what Jesus said to them, but we can through the gospels look at all the other things that Jesus said and get a pretty good idea what he may have been saying. Whatever it was, though, Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he said to them, "I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm going to lead you, give you direction." and begin to point you in that right direction. When I, when I think of Jesus as shepherd, one of the first things that comes to my mind is perhaps one of the most familiar, if not the most familiar, of all the Psalms. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Look back at Mark chapter 6. It says that when He told them to sit down, there was what? Green grass. They're on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The waters are, at this point, still. I think we've got a picture here of our great shepherd. Jesus sees a, a lost aimless, directionless people. His heart goes out to them. And he acts and he takes up the role as shepherd and he begins to teach. He is a prophet. He is a shepherd in a sense in the mold of Moses, even though we know Moses ultimately is in the mold of, of Christ. You know, this is what, so much of, of what God does in history of the scriptures like this, isn't necessarily obvious the first time it happens. You know, the disciples, and we're going to see this later on, the disciples don't get this at first. And even if we were um, to go back in, in Moses' day and see this prophecy, we might not know all that it really was going to ultimately mean. God so often does things that we don't really understand until after they've happened. Have, have you noticed that? God does this where He says it's here and we're confused and we don't know what that means. And it's not until years later, sometimes months later, or sometimes even decades later that we look back and go, oh, now I get it. <laughs> I didn't get it back then. And I think this is one of those instances that maybe they didn't understand quite what it meant for the prophet to come in the way of Moses. And maybe not everyone caught all the symbolism here but we can look back at this now and go, not only did God do this in Moses' day, but God did this here. And now that we're here some two or 3,000 years later, we look at all that and go, look at all of that. Look at how God worked here. Look at how God worked here. Look at how God worked there. And now it makes sense. I get it. And when it comes to something like the Bible, this, one of the things that's really cool to me about this is, you know, the events of Moses took place more than a millennium before Christ was here. That prophecy dates back more than a millennium, more than a thousand years before Christ was this prophecy. And yet, it's only in looking back at history we get the, the full grasp of it. You know what that tells me? It tells me the same God who wrote Genesis is the same God who wrote Matthew is the same God who wrote Revelation. It all is one big story. It's all connected. It's one author. Yes, the Bible itself is composed by many different human authors, but there is only one author. There is only one story. So the story of our Messiah, the story of our God. So Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach. 
He's giving us a glimpse as to who He really is. And so this morning, we need to be reminded that I don't care where you are right today. I don't, you know, or, or tomorrow. wherever You may be in a place of green grass and pleasant place in your life. You may be in a, a spot where it's difficult and hard. Wherever you are at, He is the great shepherd. He will be with you. It doesn't matter what location you're in. He is the shepherd. You never have to be someone who is aimless and wandering and alone. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack for anything. So we have this scene. Jesus teaching the lost sheep of Israel. Apparently it was a pretty good service because it's gone on throughout the day. <laughs> and it's getting late enough, the disciples are making an observation. Verse 35, his disciples came to him and said, The place is desolate. It's already quite late. Send them away so they may go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves some bread. So here's the situation. You have a good, big-sized crowd that probably even a Baptist buffet would not feed. As much food as you guys cook, and you guys cook some, some serious food when we get together, even what we eat on a Sunday fellowship probably would not take care of this crowd. <laughs> it's a lot of folks. And the disciples are going, listen, it's been a great day. We're tired. They're hungry. Send everybody home. It's time to be done. It's time to dismiss this thing. It would be tempting of us here to kind of be critical of the disciples, wouldn't it? Is there a single one of us that would look at the situation and think of anything different? There's upwards of 10, 12, 15,000 maybe. At the very least, just 5,000 guys. You know how much food 5,000 men can pack away? Is it going to be a lot? Yeah, I think the answer is a lot. And so, what other options really are there? This, this is not, I don't think, this is really an act of, or a lack of compassion on the disciples. I think they're just kind of being practical here. It's time to move forward. It's time to move on with our agenda and our schedule. And so Jesus says, tell you what, you feed them. Now, I, I don't know the look on his face when he said this. Sometimes you just kind of wonder, there's, you know, we're reading words on a page. You know, we, got the, we got the little black and white words, or maybe you got the red edition, red letter edition. You got red and white words there. And, and you see, Jesus says, you feed them. Sometimes I'm kind of wondering, okay, what was the inflection in his voice? Was, was there a tone of voice there? Was there a little bit of sarcasm? Was there a hint of laughter? Was there a sparkle in his eye? Was he doing something to make you kind of go, oh, he's messing with them? What was it like when you said, you feed them? I don't know. <laughs> but I know the disciples went, what? In fact, <laughs> Their, their, their responses are, are, are really kind of, kind of interesting here. Obviously, they didn't, know how to, they didn't know what to make of this. Now, the big picture is this. He said, well, what do you got? And they come up with five loaves and two fish. Now, in the Gospel of John, we find out those five loaves and two fish actually came from some little boy over here. We don't have that information in this particular account. But this is what they have. They have five loaves of bread. And by the way, these loaves of bread are not like the bread you buy at the store here. It's not some 
foot and a half long piece of square bread. These are probably just little biscuits about like this. Probably the fish are more like sardines. So these are not, this is not big five pieces of French bread. Not that it really would have mattered anyway. This is small food. And he, he, he passes it out. He says, I tell you what, that's, what do you got? And they said, this is what we got. And, and the point of this, if we know that Jesus is the great shepherd, that he's teaching and he's associating himself with this prophet in the, shape, in the, in the, in the way of Moses, something else is going to happen here too. Jesus takes this stuff and he blesses, he offers what's a standard blessing. It's essentially saying, thank you for this food, Lord. And then he distributes it out. Now, the point of this story right here is not in, of course, this is where the boy is unnamed. We don't know there's a boy at all here, do we? The point of the story is not the sacrifice of a lunch of a little boy. The point of the story is not the great skill and the disciples in passing out food to 10,000 people, even though that probably took a little while. The, the point of the story is not the, the great gourmet bread or the great tasty fish. It's not looking for something besides bread and fish to pass out. It's not the idea of purchasing something else. The point of this is that when something comes in contact with Jesus, it's transformed. The point of the story is not the bread and the fish. The point of the story is not the disciples. The point of the story is not the crowd. The point of the story is the one who multiplied and put power into it. It is Christ himself. If Jesus is identifying himself with the prophet in the vein of Moses, he's also doing something even greater than that. We have this location described as a place of somewhat desolate, kind of in the wilderness, you might expect or you might think. Where else were the people of Israel fed in the wilderness? For 40 years in the, month, in the, in the book of Exodus, right? Who provided bread in Exodus? God did. It was called manna. And every day they had enough bread to feed them for that day. It just came out of nowhere. It just showed up in the morning. It was out there. They'd go get bread. See, not only is Jesus saying, I am the prophet who God is sending, like Moses, who will be your shepherd and who will teach you the words of God. I am the God who sent Moses. Jesus is saying here, I am not just a prophet like Moses. I am the God who sent Moses. Moses, I am the God who provided you bread in the wilderness then, and I'm the God who will provide you bread in the wilderness today. Jesus is making a very obvious, and they caught this. We'll see it in a moment. They caught this. He's making a very obvious statement. I am, I am. We want to know who Jesus is. We want to catch a vision of who Jesus is. He's a shepherd. He's a caretaker. He is a provider. He is I am. And so Jesus is attaching himself in the wilderness here on the Sea of Galilee to the same God who brought them through the wilderness under the leadership of Moses so long before. I am the same one, Jesus is saying to them. There's even in the, in the, even in the groups of hundreds of fifties, there's pictures of how God organized the people of Israel back in the wilderness at times. It, it's, there's all kinds of little nuggets here that we don't have time to get into this morning. But the point is this, 
the infinite power of the I am, the infinite power of God, the one who provided for the people of Israel all the food they needed for years and years and years as they traveled through the desert, is the same God who stands before them here on the Sea of Galilee. The same God who says, five loaves, two fish, a lunch for a small boy, no big deal. I'm the God who spoke everything into existence. I can handle this. And all of a sudden there was lunch for everybody, and not just lunch for everybody, lunch until they are satisfied. Y'all know what that means, right? That means they got done eating bread and fish and went, Y'all know that, right? Y'all know that feeling? (laughs) They ate till they could eat no more. And after they ate and could eat no more, there's 12. Each disciple gets his own basket of leftovers. (laughs) Now, I don't know what leftover fish tastes like, but, you know, hey, they had a basket of leftovers. They ended up with more than they started with by a lot. And this story does not give, again, the story is not about the disciples doing a great organizational job and passing out the the fish. It's not about the boy even. This is about the infinite I am shepherding his people. That's what this is a story about. This past week, this past Wednesday night, we started looking at the attributes of God. We had a a pretty heady conversation on Wednesday night about who God is as we started to study on the attributes of God. But one thing we were talking about was the absolute otherness, the absolute infinite, majestic power of who God is. And if we have lost sight of the absolute glory and, and majesty of who He is, I, I just, you, you lose words <laughs> trying to describe it. If we lose sight of who He is, we don't worship Him properly and we don't recognize what He can do. The disciples and the crowd had not, even though they seen him do things, they were still not fully appreciating who Jesus is. And I sometimes wonder if even those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, who are walking day by day as believers, who wear the name of Christ, who attend church, who go to Bible studies, who pray and who sing how great is our God, have we really begun to understand who he is? Or is our God, to use a cliche, too small. Without even realizing it, have we not understood the majestic, infinite power and otherness of who God is, who is in fleshly form in Jesus Christ? He is more than we can possibly describe. He's present in our pain. He's present in our lostness. He's present in our wandering around. And He sees us and He has compassion for us. And He shepherds us and He cares for us. This infinite God does all these things. Now, in the middle of all this, in the middle of Jesus demonstrating who He is to the crowds and to the disciples, there are a a number of responses here we want to take a look at just real briefly before we're done this morning. One is, and we see this at first, I kind of referenced it a few minutes ago the disciples see the situation they see the crowd they see the lack of food and they say listen it's time to shut this thing down and call it off and send everybody home because the solution to this is that we we can't do anything about it the situation we find ourselves in jesus is lots of them few of us no food the logical thing is 
send them home. That makes sense. They all have the ability to get food at home. At least we hope they do. If not, that's not our problem. But that's the logical thing to do. And, and, and sometimes maybe that's our response to things that God wants us to be involved in. Well, that can't be done. That's impossible. That, let's just do the logical thing. Let's do the rational thing. And again, it's pretty easy to look at the disciples and say, well, they don't have any compassion. They don't have any graciousness. I think that's maybe overstating it, in fact. I just think they're going, listen, these folks are hungry. What's the only rational thing to do here? Let them go home and get something to eat. I don't think the disciples are, I don't think they're uncompassionate. I just think it never occurs to them that there's any other idea. I don't think it ever occurs to them that the God of the universe might have something else in mind. You know, there are those in church today who it never occurs to that we are a group of people who God wants to do miracles through. We look at our own lives whether it's our jobs or whether it's our education or whether it's our relationships, and we just go through our lives and it never occurs to us to do anything other than just, you know, use logic and do rational things. And I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying be illogical. <laughs> I'm not saying be irrational. But what I am saying is this. We as the people of God should be open to the idea that God might do something that to us makes no sense. That He might do something so far outside of our experience or outside of our expectations that there's no other way to explain there's no way to explain it rationally we need to be open to the idea that god may well in fact choose to do that type of thing and never occurred to the disciples and these folks had seen these guys had seen jesus raise someone from the dead they'd seen him cast out ten thousand demons from a demoniac they'd seen him calm the storm with a single word and yet it never occurred to them that he might do something miraculous and yet, I think we're often kind of the exact same way. But there's something else here, too. I, I kind of mentioned this. You know, Jesus tells them, you feed them. And look at, look at the, the response. They said to him, and elsewhere we find out it's, the, it's Philip. Are we going to go spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And by, 200 denarii, by the way, is somewhere between 8 to 12 months wages. So basically, he says, what do you want us to do? Go spend our next year's wages on feeding all these people for one day? I have a hunch. I don't know for sure that there was a hint of sarcasm there. I don't know. Can you be sarcastic in Jesus' presence? I don't know. But I got a hunch there was a hint of sarcasm there. Lord, that send these people home so they can, come get some, so they can go get something to eat. You feed them. What, we're going to spend a year's salary on feeding this bunch? Yeah, right. In other words, this can't happen. This can't take place. Or if we're going to do it, Jesus, this is what it's going to cost. I've done, the, I've done the budgeting figures. I've done the numbers. I've crunched them up. And based upon the cost of bread today, based upon uh, the availability of bread, this is what it's going to cost. Here's it, 200 denarii, eight, nine months wages, Jesus. You really want us to do that? So there are some folks who just say, they're not going to even consider that God might do something. There's some folks who hear what God wants us to do and go, okay, well, let's that's, 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 uh, that's kind of get all the details out here and let's dot the I's and cross the T's and budget it out and go, okay, well, we can do this. Here's what's going to cost. And, of course, the, the implication by, by the disciples is we can't do this. There's no way we have that kind of money. I, I doubt they're carrying a year's worth of wages on them. Let's see what we can do. 
How often do we live our lives as believers in Christ limited by what we think God can't do or what we can't do? He just says, bring the food. Bring what you got. It's kind of interesting here. We have a little bit of a, of a crisis here, right? What to do? Now, again, what's the logical thing to do? Just, just let everybody go home. It's not a big deal. Just, just let everybody go home. And Jesus says, well, we're going to feed them. So there's a sense where Jesus kind of creates himself. He kind of creates the crisis, doesn't he? So I just send them all home. He says, no, we're going to feed them. We're going to... He, creates the, he creates the impossible situation and says, solve it. And they realize they can't solve it. And the impossible situation that Jesus creates, guess what he does? He solves it. We were in our Sunday school class this morning, we were talking about the people of Israel in Exodus leaving. They've been released by Pharaoh after the ten plagues. And the Bible says that Pharaoh... Uh, that, the, that, that God led them with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud down south towards the Sea of Galilee, or say, the Red Sea. Got my, got my seas all mixed up. The Red Sea. And essentially what ends up happening is that God leads his people into what looks like, from a military point of view, a horrible place to camp out. He leaves his people in a vulnerable situation. Now, we know the rest of the story. He does that. God creates this crisis. He leaves his people vulnerable so that he can in turn come back and do what? Deliver them. Jesus kind of creates the situation. He says, listen, we're not going to send these people home. We're going to feed them. Well, that's impossible. Well, now he's going to solve the problem that's been created. And by that, he's going to show who he is. There is a story from years ago of a famous violinist who was known to possess a priceless Stradivarius violin. If you know anything about musical instruments, a Stradivarius violin, these are, these are works of art. They're supposed to be the best violins out there. They, they can be worth hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, depending on the details. This man owned a Stradivarius violin. He comes out for his concert, brings out the violin, pulls it out of the case, and kind of holds it up, and the people in the audience all go, And for the next 15 minutes, this man makes heavenly music on this violin. After 15 minutes, he takes the violin. And to the horror of everyone in the room, smashes it and breaks it into pieces. He walks off the stage and he brings another violin in another case. People are in shock. He says this, this is the real Stradivarius. The one I was just playing for you was a cheap dime store violin. This is the Stradivarius. I wanted you to know the magic of this music is not in the instrument. It's in the instrumentalist. It's in the artist. It's in the musician. It's the one who draws the bow across the strings that makes the music. And as he resumed the concert, the audience no longer oohed and awed over the violin. They oohed and awed over the violinist. 
Our story this morning in Mark chapter 6 is pointing us not to the disciples, not to the bread and the fish, not to the instruments, but to the great musician, to the great shepherd, to the great I am.